Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to another conversation in practical theology. This is Sayyid Azadi, and I'm here with Eric Stoddard. Today, we're going to be looking at power in religion, and we're going to be discussing various aspects of how power shows up, how it manifests itself, how people of religion give power within religious communities and within the faith as well. To kick off, I think I'm just going to really look at what power in religion means to me. And it's an interesting one because the first thing that comes to my mind is the fact that within the Quran, it quite clearly says that there is no compulsion in religion, which actually means that there is no kind of um, force to be applied to make people come to the faith and therefore people have choice people have an option to decide whether they come into faith or not and I think in some ways especially given the way that Islam is or the way that the media and other quite um, vocal sources communicate about the religion of Islam for example um, one would view that on the outside as if there is a lot of kind of power in terms of the force of people coming into faith. And I think that's quite important for me to say that there is no compulsion in religion. Also elsewhere in the Quran, it says you to your religion and me to mine, which actually shows that there's some um, quite a big degree of mutual respect within faith. And I think that these are the things that sometimes get a little bit lost. Yeah, I, I think from a Christian historical perspective, the compulsion of Christianity with f- forcing, you know, I'm in Scotland, and I can see the historical evidence of churches that impose their will on people's lives. And when you tie religious power with secular power, as it was in many times in Scottish history, people had to they either had to convert from Catholicism to Protestantism or back the other way, or if they were already Protestants, they had to behave in particular ways. They could be sanctioned, uh, fined, all sorts of things. And I think it's so refreshing that we're in, for most of us, we're in situations where religion is not compelled for us. But even sometimes within, you know, I can think within Christianity, sorts of communities that compel behavior. Uh, of their um, members, often quite small, exclusive sort of groups of Christians, and people are not allowed an awful lot of flexibility. And to me, that's, it's just the antithesis of what Christianity Mm. should be. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you 100%. And I suppose people watching might say that my um, introduction is somewhat naive, because whilst there may be no compulsion within within islam for example and you know within christianity actually practically on the ground what's happening (laughs) Mm. and it's very sad to say that i i mean even last year i attended a conference and i was quite shocked at the the discussions that was happening around um uh, muslim refugees and asylum seekers within certain communities about how they were being taken in by certain churches and then being encouraged to go into the faith and that, you know, if you come into the faith, we can help you 
game of citizenship. And it's, 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 that's where I think maybe one of the most challenging power dynamics is actually taking place right now. It's the, the conversation about faith groups and migration and um, people who um, don't necessarily fit in. It's... And I think that's part for me of the power of religion. It, it wants to make us all fit in whatever our particular faith tradition is, there's something about being part of a religious community that you want to fit in, but at the same time that community needs you to fit in and do it their particular way. And that can be really quite subtle sometimes. Yeah, and I, I, I think um, from my perspective, like, I mean, I see my relationship as being directly with God no, I I don't think um, Muslims need filters to be told, um, you know, this is how you converse with God. This is how you pray, all of that. And so attending a mosque for me is about strengthening my relationship with God. And then the being part of the community, if it works, it's great. And that's kind of like a secondary benefit. Now, what's interesting is the power dynamic within mosques. And so that it's, it's very, very obvious who are the people in charge. And, and I think, especially now we're after Ramadan, one of the things that I would be quite vocal in saying is that, you know, everybody gets leadership training and management training at work. We all learn how to communicate. But I think it's missing within faith communities. People don't know how to treat other people. So if there's a message to be said, you know, please don't sit there, sit here, because this is for able-bodied people or this is for people with um, babies or whatever it is. It's sometimes just the force that that comes through when someone's given a little bit of power. Oh, yes, that human instinct that when you get a little bit of power and you have a little bit of authority and you can be a big fish in a very little bowl, there is something just so human about the need to exert that. Mm-hmm. And there, <clears throat> power is, I think, it, it, it's, there's a sort of lust with power because if you have a little bit of power, you want a little bit more. There's, it, it's, it, there's a temptation around about it. And it, it, it's... I remember back to my days as, as, as a minister in a, in a Christian congregation and you had to understand where the power lay in a congregation and it didn't necessarily lay with those that had the labels of the office, uh, whether they were clergy or lay people. You had to work out who's actually got the power in this particular congregation and it may be in some of the surprising corners that you hadn't expected. But naming that, I think, is part of the first process, and certainly as practical theologians, naming where and how power is operating, regardless mm. of the labels of uh, office holders or anything, I think that's maybe where practical theology can really help us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's interesting, because as you're speaking, I'm thinking about influence. Mm. And so maybe there's, a, there's an interesting relationship between, uh, and maybe actually it's two sides of the same coin, where some people have the power but others actually have the influence because I've observed it myself where I've seen young people come in and 
you know, all of a sudden there's a crowd around them and it's amazing because they're, they're actually, they're not messing around that, you know, they're, they're having kind of like faith based discussions, but it's just literally because one young person has walked in and they have a level of influence over the rest of their peer group. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch that. And as you describe it, I can think back to days in Christian communities where precisely that thing would happen. You could have a young person who was very articulate about their faith, very sincere, but actually totally uncharismatic in just the general sense of the word. But then you could get someone who was just full of energy and was very, very influential for the good, but they didn't have the same intellectual understanding of the faith they didn't have the same experience but yet they were able to be influential for good amongst their peers mm. but it, it didn't match those with the the head knowledge weren't necessarily the influencers mm. but isn't that interesting because looking back at prophets they are not the you know with the greatest of respect and they themselves they're unlettered they're not the most intellectual, you know, clearly they haven't been to university, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yet they had the, the charisma and the um, kind of the divine power, you know, to influence and to create, you know, changes over many, many generations. And their impact is still with us today. So. Yeah. Oh. And, and thinking from Christianity, the disciples, who were fishermen, one was a tax collector, Jesus' own ministry was supported by women who were professionals, uh, businesswomen. And you know, one of the big things about the Christian early Christian community was that they were unlettered. And that was a criticism. The prevailing authorities saw them as unlettered. What business have they got to be teaching us about religion? But they were incredibly influential. And I wonder if it it was clearly something divine, but something about their character and their disposition. And that seems to be what attracts people to positive power, influence, whatever we call it. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm kind of trying to think about people who are surprising me these days in terms of the the way that they are speaking about politics and about some of the issues that are taking place in the UK, for example. And so I'm immediately drawn to people like Russell Brand and Anelka and things. And actually, I mean, I'd written Russell Brand off, you know, 20 years ago because he was just doing things that I didn't really, you know, it didn't add to my life, didn't help me develop or anything. But then I saw a two-minute clip of something that he said on, um, uh, I think it was an interview with Channel 4 or something. And it just fascinated me enough to buy his book. And as I'm reading his book, I'm seeing somebody who has grown up in challenging circumstances. And I think everybody, every human being can identify some challenging circumstance that they've had in their life. But what he did was his initial response to it was to go into various different forms of addiction. And then through a massive cry for help, he got the support that he needed and now he's able to teach others. And I just found it absolutely fascinating that in some ways we can all relate to that story. So that from, from a modern day perspective, we don't need to, 
um, we don't need the letters. We don't necessarily need the religious education. You know, I'm I'm a lay person within my mosque. I have no power in any way, shape, or form. But I know what I would like from a mosque, and so I only go to those places that actually um, appeal to me because your life is also very short. You know, and I think I've said this before in one of our conversations. And so it's that I didn't. It's, maybe it's about where do we allocate the power you know and so it's a it's making that deliberate decision to say actually i have some influence over what i choose to do and then being deliberate about it yeah i think that's absolutely right because power is not something that's just operated towards us we respond to power and we choose to some extent whose power that we allow to influence it now i you know, we know that there are powerful forces and people with lots of not just authority but physical strength or political strength behind them and they can impose their will. We know that. But in everyday circumstances, I don't think we should ever lose sight of the fact that we're we're responding with our own power when someone in a religious community comes to us and tries to exert power over us. That we are making choices. We are responsible but we're also agents of how we shape our own spirituality especially if if we begin to suspect that power is just getting a little bit out of hand in a religious community yeah absolutely and i think and i think that then kind of comes back to you take or one taking ownership of where they can exert their influence and so there was uh, there's been a couple of incidents actually when i've been to um the mosque and somebody and I've gone to pray but somebody has just come and they just want to have a chat and then you think actually am I going to be the only person that they ever speak to today am I uh, do they just need someone to listen to them for half an hour so I have to make a decision about what I do and I found the, the conversation inside my mind fascinating about this because I thought I can go in, I can do um, the kind of um, the prayer, the five prayers a day. I can do those. I have to kind of like do my compulsory prayer. But then after that, do I give, do I make the decision to have this conversation? Because if God was watching me, would he, she want me to have that conversation rather than sit in a congregation where I'm just listening. So it's, it's even in there, there's an element of power in my, because you making a deliberate decision to decide what to do. I, th- I think those deliberate decisions, consciousness of our own capacity to make those sorts of decisions. And for me, the, the Christian tradition of talking about the congregation as sheep is so unhelpful. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole language that's developed over 2,000 years of, okay, yes, Jesus the good shepherd and bishops being shepherds under Jesus and the whole idea of Christians following Jesus as sheep. It's so badly misunderstood and a whole host of things. But I think one of those is that this idea that sheep are docile and just do whatever they're told. That, for me, within Christianity has been so harmful Mm. that if we need metaphors in our faith communities that are about people empowered by faith, not in some sort of anarchic, just we're all going to do our own thing because we are part of communities, 
but being empowered to think through what is happening in faith communities. I think who is talking to me, who is trying to influence me, what capacity do I have to accept that, to resist that, to go along with that, and what am I doing myself in my communities? Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I'd be interested to, to ask you, what, how do you think that kind of metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep could be replaced? Oh goodness! Um, I probably wouldn't try. And re- <laughs> yes, I probably wouldn't try and replace it with another animal. Um, and I think some of the farming metaphors were so distant from them, not just in time but in culture, because you know shepherds and sheep had a different relationship in uh, Palestine at that time than you know sheep in Scotland and, and shepherds. So I, I, I'm not sure if I could find a metaphor. I've I've used in my writing the term critical discipleship, meaning Mm. discipleship that is critical for our times, but discipleship that is actually a critical exercise where people are thinking critically the whole time, and that's part of discipleship. It's not a betrayal of discipleship. It's being a good Christian disciple is to think critically about the world, but to think critically about faith and how we are being shaped by our own faith leaders and how we're shaping other people. So maybe critical discipleship, I'm probably struggling to come up with a, with a metaphor. Um, yeah, I think, I think it is a hard one. It's, it's uh, not going to be easy to do even within this conversation, but it may, maybe there's something to, to, to discuss in the future about the um, different relationships and how roles, dare I say, even were allocated by us, by um, leaders of the past, and how they all relate to each other. Because I think for me, this this whole thing about um, uh, critical decision making within faith is is really really important. I think I I don't like it, and, and in fact, actually, Islam discourages one just following a particular thing because my parents did it or because somebody else is doing it. It, And I think this is something that's clearly forgotten because there's um, a core knowledge that as Muslims we should all have. So we should study um, the fiqh, and by fiqh it means kind of like the rules of or the laws of, so the fiqh of prayer, of um, ablution, of fasting, um, of uh, kind of making uh, making pilgrimage. And, And if you do these things, then... And there are lots of differences of opinion. But if someone then says to you, why do you do it this way? Your answer isn't going to be, oh, just because my dad did it or because that person over there is doing it. it you actually have a um, kind of fact-based response because you studied it. And so, and that study doesn't necessarily need to be formal study. It's just actually passing down information from one person to another. And so no one needs the qualification they just need to have allocated some time to this. And that's something that I think has got lost. And so people don't know their faith anymore. Now that, that's interesting because we've, we've sort of been talking a lot about people influencing us with words. But you've introduced this really fascinating area of how we're shaped by the power of the rituals that we perform. Mm. And I like this idea of really understanding our rituals because that enriches the ritual and it gives us 
new perspectives on a very routine thing in the very best sense of the word, that we're doing it almost without having to think about whether we're going to do it or not. But the freedom and the simplicity that comes from that, but then the power of that to enrich us, to give us a shape to what's happening. Yeah, and and a simple example of that is that um, we often see kind of um, couples walking down the street holding hands, right? And you just you kind of just think, oh, you know, that's cute. You don't really do much more. But I was fascinated when I heard that in Islam, that if you hold hands, then it's literally it's as if the sins are dropping off your hand. And all of a sudden, it just made me think, like, isn't that such a nice thing that you hold your hand with your spouse? And you're kind of building affection and all of that other stuff. But at the same time, you know, any like sins that you had literally are just dropping off your hands. You know, oh, and so you could do it on you, you. For me, then you're kind of doing it on two different levels, you know, and of course, no one forces it or anything. But it's just a simple act like that builds connection. And it also then it takes a new meaning to an act that you might do for you know just nothing other than creating a bond but now you're doing it on a whole different series of levels and i think as i'm speaking about it i also wonder if god is observing this and then even putting more kind of love and all of that hippie stuff within the relationship because he's seeing you doing this yeah and my mind's immediately going to some photographs of people holding hands in political settings Mm. And I think of one particular president of a major country holding hands with my prime minister. Um, and the body language there so is <laughs> so different to what you're describing. And hand-holding being a powerful way of communicating or resisting. And then we've seen in the more recent months, various other world leaders hold shaking hands with that president and almost getting into a sort of wrestling match and leaving white finger marks uh, on the president's skin because they've been gripping so tight and the power struggle going on in the shaking of hands, let alone the holding of hands. And there's something to look at just how, how people hold hands, how people shake hands, within religious communities, as expressions of faith, of compassion, whatever, I think that gives us an, an insight into how power actually operates and some of the beautiful ways in which it operates. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it's funny because uh, as, as a Muslim, I shouldn't you know, shake hands with or hug or anybody from um, the opposite gender. And in certain situations, um, people don't, know or or the other doesn't know how to respond Mm -hmm. and it's fascinating how some of these things have become um cultural norms for being polite yet especially now with all of these various kind of campaigns like me too etc i think where is the the boundary if someone is quite is um being very clear and saying actually i don't want to have any physical interaction and then the other person is saying, but this is what is common within my culture and I'm going to impose this upon you. Where is the power within that um, kind of dynamic? So how, in practical terms, how do you 
respect your own faith boundary when in so much of everyday culture we'll just reach out our hand to someone to shake their hand without even thinking about it how, how do you manage that with yeah it, i mean it's a very good question especially because you know I'll, I'll go to conferences and um, various events and you're in a situation where it's the polite thing to do now one thing i found absolutely fascinating is the kind of cultural differences between people within the UK and people within the States. So when I've been to events in the States and someone offers their hand and I say, I'm really sorry, um, I can't shake it. Or they go to pounce on you and give you a hug and you're just like, you know, just like, I can't. And then um, as soon as you say that, they'll, the, the majority will ask why. And then when you say, you know, I'm just not allowed to do this within my faith, 99% of people will respect that. And then they'll talk about their relationship with God and how faith has, has kind of like, you know, what church they go to. They'll always give you that little bit of information that you would never get had you not said, I'm really sorry, I can't shake your hand. And I find it really enlightening. Whereas in the UK, and I don't know whether it's because we tend to be more um, secular within the UK, or even within Europe as a whole, let's say, there's... Um, that you, you're perceived just as being a little bit odd, even within religious um, or kind of multi-faith communities, unless there's an understanding that uh, Muslims you know, will not tend to um, shake hands or give hugs or whatever with the opposite gender. Um, unless there's that understanding, you are then kind of put into that, that's a bit strange bucket. I, I get the, the UK British because, you know, you, you know that we Brits are just so, generally speaking, reluctant to talk about religious stuff. And when any of us as Brits do religious stuff, that creates a sort of embarrassment. Uh, and so that is so much part of the culture we share. Um, so it's, it's okay f to, to shake hands with a woman? Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I'm thinking in terms of Christianity, the within many services, certain types of Christian service, we have the sharing the peace, where it's as part of the the mass. There's that communicating of Christ's peace, where we're supposed to shake hands, but then you get into this horrible situation where is this person expecting a hug? Are they going to hug you? Is this an appropriate, you want a hug from that particular person? If you hug that one, but you don't hug this one, but then you shake hands with that one, it, it's an absolute nightmare. Mm. And it's, it's, it, there it's more about social convention rather than a faith practice. But in Christianity, that handshake across gender, across nationality, is, is understood totally differently. Yeah but generates a lot of angst for people, certainly mm. more introverted folks yeah. who are expected to do something. But it's really interesting that the difference with a handshake that yeah. has developed in our traditions. It's interesting because what I'll tend to do is, uh, like, if, I, you know, I can't shake your hand, but what I'll do is I'll take my hand and I'll put it on my heart as a sign of respect to you. And if you ask me what I'm doing, then I will explain that. And, in even even at work you know um when i used to work for the government people were like a bit 
you know, that's a bit strange. But then when you would explain to them why you're putting your hand on your heart as a gesture of actually showing respect and care for them, then they would be taken aback more than just that simple handshake. Is that a particularly Muslim practice? I, I believe it is. I think when you shake your hand, I mean, certainly the practice that I'm doing is when I sh- if I shake the hands of somebody, then I'll still always touch my heart. Yeah. And uh, it could be, it could actually be Arab culture. You asked me an interesting question. I need to check, or it could just be, um, uh, I'm not sure. Part of the reason I'm asking is, would it be inappropriate cultural appropriation if when you and I meet in person, mm-hmm. if I were to do that, would, would that be me appropriating a Muslim practice inappropriately? Or, or how, how would you see that? I would think I would have a great deal of respect for that personally. I mean, I think, um, yeah, cultural appropriation, I think, is a very fascinating conversation. (laughs) Maybe one that we should put on our list. But actually, even religious appropriation we could do. That would be quite an interesting one. But I I mean, if if you do that, then I would see that as as a sign of mutual respect. Okay, I'm going to. We're going. We're both going to be at a conference in, yeah. in uh, Warwick coming up, and I'm going to do my very best to remember to do. <laughs> I'll that. remind you. <laughs> Please remind yeah. me. Um, so, because with everyone shaking hands all round about when you gather for the conference, I'm going to. Actually, we should do that when we begin our paper. We can do that. Yes. Yeah, that'd yeah. Be amazing. Okay. <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah, and I think there is something about recognizing how power works in our individual circumstances and you know like the power of a handshake and stuff and how that shapes how we think about our faith how we how we think about other people because the way that we use power i think is indicative as to how we're understanding our own faith yeah absolutely but I, and and i think it come as individuals it comes back to where we allocate the power we have a deliberate choice to make about who we even give power to you know there are some um, individuals within, I think, all of our faith communities that we probably will choose to give absolutely no power to because they practice their faith in their way, but it's not the, I wouldn't even go anywhere close to that. And that's a choice that I'm making. It doesn't mean that I'm disrespecting them. It's just, it's not the way that I want to do it. And that, I suppose, in conclusion, I think, the the discussion about power for me is all about where we choose to allocate it and our awareness of it because with power comes influence and when you influence somebody and you have an impact on their life they're going to then continue to have a similar impact on other people within their community and it becomes generational it's literally as if you're kind of knocking one domino in a particular direction so we need to um, well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say we need to. I think we need to, and we should, and we should want to make sure that we direct any power that we receive and that we give in a way that is 100% um, consistent and authentic with who we are. And I would finish off with just another plug for practical theology as a method, because what we've been talking about is actually understanding everyday practices of power 
we've understood it through different cultural, political dimensions, social dimensions. We've understood it through our faith traditions. And we've actually even thought about different ways of practicing power in our relationship when we meet at the conference. And I think what you're saying about how we then shape through our relationships with other people, we're always conscious of our influence. And I think practical theology helps us to be more aware of exactly those sorts of issues and then to, to maybe be and to, and to, and to act, act differently. So yeah, absolutely. up to Christian, uh, to practical theology yet again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think practical theology gives a level of awareness um, through reflection and th- just even through taking time out. So, yeah, I'm with you 100% on that. Big plug for anyone who wants to study and look into practical theology. Maybe actually underneath this particular episode, we could just share some um, introductory resources for people if they want to kind of find out a little bit more about practical theology and what it is and how they can get more involved i think that would be quite useful for people watching um again thank you so much eric thank you to anybody who's watching please do share this video if you haven't seen the previous episodes just take some time and listen or watch those there's so much to learn in the world of practical theology and uh, i'll see you again we'll see you again at the next conversation thank you goodbye bye-bye